Thank you so much for your prayers. I really do appreciate that. And my wife and I uh, felt your prayers, felt still the, God of, the grace of God over the last few moments. I really do appreciate it. Um, I'm here this morning because by the time everything happened last night, uh, it was so late. Actually, we got the call about my dad passing away about 9, uh, 9.15, something like that last night. And of course, immediately we started calling family and friends. And when you have six kids, it takes a while to get a hold of them all and uh, make arrangements for flights and all that. At one o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning, we figured out, oh, maybe I need to ask somebody to preach for me tomorrow. And um, then I realized everybody I know is asleep at this moment. And I thought, well, I'm prepared uh, pretty much, so I'm going to preach this morning. And, uh, you know, I had some second guesses about that, some uh, second thoughts about that this morning. And in the earlier service at 8.30, this crowd surrounded me in prayer. And uh, man, I tell you, I, I could have preached till noon today in that service alone because of the grace that I felt. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, walk through this text with you today. Thank you so much for your prayers. We'll be going to Phoenix. Uh, my dad continued to pastor uh, until uh, last night when he passed away. Full-time pastor, 87 years of age. Uh, the name of the church was Spring Valley Community Church north of Phoenix, Arizona. Been out there for about 30 years pastoring uh, in various churches and then this one. And uh, man of God, I know beyond doubt he's with the Lord. I also know that he's got this huge crown in heaven that he's going to be uh, throwing at the feet of Jesus because of the many, many times he's ministered, led people to Christ. My dad was leading people to Christ. He was leading my friends to Christ when I was growing up and I was embarrassed by the fact he was talking to my friends about Jesus. Can you imagine that? And um, I'd say, Dad, don't, don't share the gospel with him. I mean, he's mean to me. And, and uh, my dad said, but he needs Jesus. And he would go share the gospel with one of my enemies in high school. Can you imagine a dad like that? But reality, he gave me a phenomenal example. So thankful for him and uh, thankful for your prayers over these next few days. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open them up uh, to our Brave series and Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. One of the reasons that it's so important, I think, for me to walk through this text today is because so much of what we're doing today uh, and in the Brave series and in the foundation in the book of Luke is getting this foundation for what the kingdom is all about. The title of the message today is Brave Enough to Go Against the Grain. And I, I just don't think most of us get what it means to go, go against the grain. I believe I'm learning right now to know what it means to go against the grain of my culture and my world, even the Christianity that we embrace here in America. I believe we have to go against the grain in order to get to the heart of what Jesus is talking to his disciples about. Would you stand with me as we open up with verse 12 today, Luke chapter six, beginning in verse 12. We're actually going to go through the end of the chapter. So this is quite a, quite a bit of verses, quite a number of uh, passages today. We're taking a jet flight over, but, but unless you take this flight with me today, unless we walk uh, in an overview of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the foundation sta uh, statements that Jesus made, we're really not going to get all the individual statements. So we want to look at it all together as a whole. But we begin in verse uh, 12 of Luke chapter 6. It was at that time he went off to the mountains to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Now you know these names, Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. We know about that second Judas in particular. 
Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. This sets the foundation for what we're gonna talk about today. Father, I would ask you in Jesus' name that you help us like these early disciples to be willing, supple, and not hard-hearted, not already set in stone with what we believe is important, but to be like clay in the hands of a potter. And Father, I ask you today to help us like them be willing to listen to you and your words as you shape and form our thoughts, our lives, our future, and what we deem important. Father, I pray that you will uproot in our hearts today what needs to be uprooted in order to plant what needs to be planted in every single person in this room. And Lord, we ask this together in corporate prayer as your people. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Now we're getting ready to go over these next few moments with a whole host of passages and texts and verses and incredible beatitudes and the aspects of the Sermon on the Mount that, that stand out that we remember and that are important. But as we read every one of these verses, we're going to be letting the word speak for itself in a pretty powerful way. You can't read about 40 verses without letting that be the bulk of your message. But on the, on the beginning stage of this whole text, there are 12 disciples that we know today as famous men of God with the exception of one. When I name Simon or Matthew or Bartholomew, and I began to name these names. You see them as the apostles of the New Testament church, but the people of that day saw them as busted draft picks. We're in the middle of the NFL draft right now. I don't know if you're following that, but some of you are following drafts. In fact, it's incredible how many of you do that, and you get on fantasy drafts, and you have drafts, and then you watch uh, all the different teams draft the players, and some of you are are glued to the TV set or glued to your cell phone, finding out who is draftable, who's gonna be on our team, on and on and on. Social media picks it up and we just go crazy with that stuff. And if you took this back to that kind of time, Jesus drafting his first team would have been a total bust. These guys are not at this point who you know them to be. These guys are fishermen, tax collectors. These guys are guys that, that have reputation problems. These are men that don't know anything about the law. They don't know anything about religion. And Jesus is calling them to follow him and to change the world. And today we say that, changing the world with the power of the gospel. And when you look at them on the surface, you don't see how it can be done. I remember reading a, or watching a documentary not too long ago about the Dallas Cowboys. I love to read about them and, and, and watch Stories about them, watch football games, obviously, and then make fun of them when they don't make the playoffs. I enjoy all the above. And Jimmy Johnson was being interviewed about his time with the Cowboys when he first came to coach. And they were such a bad team at that time. They were all slow. They were all uh, older. They didn't have any real way of winning football games. And when he first came, he made a blockbuster trade when he traded Herschel Walker to the Minnesota Vikings for five uh, relatively unknown football players. And the press made light of that. They made fun of him as making the worst trade in the history of NFL football. But Jimmy Johnson took those five relatively unknown football players and turned them 
into a series of trades. Eventually, 51 football players were affected on a 53-player squad. And within a couple of years, they were competing and then won back-to-back NFL championships in just the space of a few short years. And when you look at that on the surface, you think, man, those, those five football players were not the guys that were going to win Super Bowls for us. But it was the man that was molding those football players and molding that team that made all the difference. And when you look at these disciples today, you remember who's molding these disciples. Jesus says. And when you look at the chronology and the unfolding of the Gospel of Luke, you look at what Jesus is about to pour into them, what he's about to teach them, how he's about to turn their thinking upside down. Because you can't take normal people and build the kingdom of God without uprooting old beliefs and inputting new divine principles that only God can give you. And that's exactly what Luke chapter 6 is all about. These 12 are players in the kingdom. But more than anything else, they're examples of what God can do with a few people who say, I'm willing to let you turn my world upside down. I'm brave enough. I'm willing enough to go against the grain. I hope that you're willing to go against the grain today. Three things I want you to see with us that Jesus did to these disciples. First of all, he challenged them to have enough bravery to find true blessing. The bravery of true blessing. I want you to pick it up with me as Jesus unfolds the Beatitudes in verse 20. Luke's version is the most brief of them at all. Of all, in fact, you almost have to go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 to understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying in verses 20 through verse uh, 29. But I want us to read this together. It says this, turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets, but woe to you when you're rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you when you're well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And that's a number of passages that go against the grain of our thinking. You see Jesus talking about the blessings and the woes or the blessings and the cursings. And what we view as blessing in our lives today is not what Jesus is saying that blessing is. For us, being blessed means we have lots of things that bring us comfort and fullness and joy and popularity and excitement. You see people taking selfies with their phones and you see them riding next to that hashtag blessed when they have a new car or blessed when they're sitting over a meal that looks like Thanksgiving dinner or blessed when they have a new home. And there's nothing wrong with the blessing that material things bring us, but that's not necessarily the blessing of God. Would you agree with me that you can have material things and not be blessed by God? I know people who have everything that the world can possibly offer and they don't even know the fellowship with God, much less the blessing of God. And so Jesus from the very beginning is teaching his disciples that blessing is not what you see it to be. It's something far 
far different. And I want you to value what true blessing is. Now, Jesus is going to do what we find happening all the way through the scripture, and that is he's going to begin to speak a series of paradoxes. And you know what I mean by that. In the scripture, we have all the time principles that contradict the way we see things as being right. For example, the Bible says the first shall be last and the last shall be what? First. That's a paradox, right? The Bible also says if you want to live, you must first what? Die. Are you with me today? What do you have to do before you live? You have to die. The paradoxes that we find in Scripture are rampant all the way through the Bible. And here there's a series of blessings and, and woes that fit into those paradoxes. And I want you to see what they are. I'm going to basically give you a summary of the Beatitudes. We say the blessed are rich, but Jesus says the blessed are those who are the poor in spirit. We say the blessed are full. He says the blessed are hungry and thirsty. We say the blessed are laughing, happy. He says the blessed are mourning. We say the blessed are popular and well-spoken of. He says that the blessed are reviled and hated and ostracized. Now, can you really imagine Jesus starting his ministry to the disciples and to the crowd with these kinds of words? Can you imagine him saying, look, I want to talk to you today about how miserable the kingdom life is. I want to talk to you about how you ought to be mourning instead of laughing, how you ought to be hungry instead of full, how you ought to uh, change everything about your life in order for you to know the hand of God on you. It really kind of sounds awful, but you can't really get the full meaning of it without going to Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7 because Matthew gives the more full rendition of the Beatitudes, which helps us understand all that Jesus is saying. Essentially, Jesus is saying this as you go back to your text. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And understand your need for God, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness' sake, for you're going to be satisfied when you go to God with that hunger. Blessed are you who weep and who mourn over our sin and over our separation from God, because we will laugh one day when God wipes that sin away and gives us fellowship. And blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you for my name's sake because you're going to have great reward in heaven. When you look at these, you see what is going on. One is something you have. The other is something you are. One is what we see and what we say is what you see. The other is what's behind the person in the heart. And that's what really matters. If anything, the Beatitudes here are a true picture of spiritual growth. And that true picture of spiritual growth is a really radical, difficult, terrifying picture. For me to walk in the blessing of God, God is going to have to deconstruct some things in my life first. My wife is a fan of the reality TV shows where they rebuild homes or redecorate homes. How many people watch some of those shows? Would you raise your hand? Man, your hands go up fast. Chip and Donna Gaines are really fun to watch, but there's nothing reality about their show. There's nothing real about it. They buy a house and one hour later it's renovated. <laughs> what they don't show you is 457 workers that are working week by week to make that happen. And what happens over the space of weeks and weeks and weeks, you think happens in an hour. And I know for a fact 
But when certain wives I know about go to their husbands and say, can we renovate the bathroom? They're thinking reality show. Their husbands are thinking reality. <laughs> They're thinking one hour. Their husbands are thinking the rest of my life. In the reality, there's a deconstruction. In the reality, there's a mess. In the reality, it goes on and on and on forever. In the reality, there are cost overruns. In the reality, you go broke before you finish the job. In reality, you almost divorce before you finish the job. And in the end, if you finish, then you can say, just like on TV. And you know, I... Our people somehow get the idea that spiritual growth is like that. That you pray and ask Jesus into your heart and then you get baptized, you come up out of the water and all of a sudden you've memorized the New Testament. <laughs> and you know God's answer for every problem in mankind. And all of a sudden you go from being ornery and mean and wicked and reviling of everybody that gets in your way to this sweet, kind person with a halo on their head. Kind of like an emoji that you have on your phone, right? Spiritual growth is nothing like that. Spiritual growth is all about deconstruction. Spiritual growth is all about tearing your heart up with a brokenness because of your sin and mourning over that. It's all about being hungry for righteousness and thirsty for righteousness instead of everything else. And Jesus is getting his disciples ready for true spiritual growth. And I want to ask you today, what are you going for? Are you going for the blessing of outward riches or are you going for a heart that's poor in spirit? Are you going for the fullness that comes from feeding yourself like Thanksgiving meals every time you sit down or a heart rather that's hungry and thirsty for God? Are you going for the laughter that happens so quickly and so easily, so often, but or are you rather going for the mourning that comes over sin and over separation from God? Are you going for popularity? Are you going for following God so clearly that you're truly, truly hated by some? Because you really do believe in a God of heaven who has a will for people's lives, who has a set of right and wrongs, and who really does speak through his word. We can literally be hated. The Babylon Bee, which is one of my favorite articles I, I read from time to time, came out with an article about a guy who was being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and basically he couldn't, couldn't make up his mind whether he was really being persecuted for righteousness' sake or he was being persecuted because of his reprehensible personality. And I think there are some of us that are living the Christian life in a sense, and we have reprehensible personalities, and that's really why we're being persecuted. Instead of being persecuted for doing the right thing, for stepping up at the right moment, we're taking the right kind of stand. We seem to shy away from that. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you do that. And the values I have for the kingdom are not outward, but they're inward. This, uh, this morning I happened to be looking at one of the posts uh, on Facebook. And one of the ones that was written was written by um, Sarah Johnson, the wife of Andy Johnson. I want to read it. It's just so relevant to what we're talking about today. It says, faith that withstands a hostile culture is no accident. It's cultivated. It's trained. It's prepared. It's ready. It's not blindsided by circumstance or suffering. It's not overwhelmed by its continuous testing. It's not discouraged by roads walked alone, not bitter about the crowds, not there to cheer it on. It's humble and draws strength from the body, seeks wise counsel and yields to it. It's armed with the right weapons for the right battles. It's seen things come 
and plan for them with the right tools, right supplies. It's ready for wounds, ready for weariness and weakness. It's focused, it's determined, it knows the goal. It gets up every day, even on hard days, on days after victory, on days after defeat, and it seems to grow and improve. The culture is hostile, the enemy relentless, and the faith required to overcome ain't gonna be found in the cracks of your couch on Sunday morning. Right words, Sarah. And they really kind of prepare us the way Jesus is preparing his disciples. Don't just look for blessing on the outside. Be hungry, be thirsty, and mourn over sin. And when your heart's in that position, then, then God can use you. Then God can change you. But you have to be brave to do that. You have to trust the one speaking to you. And you have to say, if that's what you're calling me to do, I'm willing to lay down the blessing of being full, the blessing of being rich, the blessing of being popular in order to say my heart's where it ought to be. Don't walk out of here today saying the pastor said it's wrong to be rich or it's wrong to eat a full meal or it's wrong to be popular. That's not what the pastor is saying today. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying value the heart and value the spiritual values more than anything else. It may be that you are popular. It may be that you are rich. It may be that you are full. Don't ever pursue that, though. Pursue the broken heart. Pursue the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pursue the desperation that says, only God can satisfy me. That takes bravery. This text also teaches us about the bravery of real fruit. So Jesus is moving in the Gospel of Luke from the call of the disciples to teaching them about what it means to go against the grain in terms of blessing, and then moving to the place of saying, here's what it takes in terms of bravery to really have real fruit in your life. And you find those in verses 29 through 38. I'm gonna read those. Whoever hits you on his cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and your son and you are sons of the most high for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men have you ever thought about that line he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men be merciful just as your father is merciful do not judge and you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned pardon and you will be pardoned give and it shall be given to you they will pour it into your lap in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure will be measured to you in return. Here's where he's going. He's saying, I'm going to model this for you. I'm going to teach this, but it can't really be taught. It's got to be caught. So you're going to follow me. Those of you who are willing, those of you who are still around at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, those of you who are willing to walk off this mountainside and continue with me through the countryside, you're gonna watch this unfold. And my call to you is not easy, but this is my call right here. And that's why this is so revolutionary and why it stands out so much. Here's why it stands out so much. Because what Jesus is saying here in terms of this fruit 
speaks of what we are not naturally good at in any way. I am not naturally good at compassion or generosity or love or kindness or mercy. I'm not naturally good at that. In fact, what Jesus says is so contrary to what we really are, what we really are sounds shocking compared to what Jesus just said. This past week, I asked Reed Chapman to walk through this text and to come up with a series of statements, which he did very well, that are opposite what Jesus is saying. Here's what he said. He said, the opposite of what Jesus is saying is, hate your enemies, hurt those who hurt you, crush those who curse you, and get payback on those who abuse you. The opposite of this is, if you're hit, hit them back harder. The opposite is, protect your own self and let other people look out for themselves. And I would say he's just about characterized the normal human life. I'm going to watch my back. Don't mess with me. If you do, I'm coming after you hard because I've got to protect mine. Jesus says, you're going to follow me. We're not going to go that way. We're going to go an entirely different way. And if you walk through the text, here's what he says. Be compassionate. Be generous. He says, be kind. Be loving. Be merciful. Be graceful. Just listen to those words flowing over your soul. They go over really smooth, don't they? Because that's grace lived out. And grace lived out looks real good on all of us. Grace lived out looks very different from what the world operates with. Grace lived out is something that's even kind of strange in the church. Quite honestly, we often don't have compassion in the church. We're not generous in the church. We're not kind or loving or merciful or graceful in the church. Sometimes we deal harshly with each other, but Jesus says you need to have enough boldness, enough bravery to look for the real fruit. As a matter of fact, all these things sound so good, but they're so far from us because we have other things in our lives that need to be uprooted. Unless we uproot those other things, we're never going to have the fruit of these things. And uprooting is hard work. A few months ago, really about a year or so ago now, my wife and I were tearing up some old hedges that had been planted 40 years before in our yard. And these hedges went about for about 30, 35 feet in terms of length down the run of our yard. And uh, they were about six foot tall. And uh, they were hedges that had been planted, as I said, decades before and gone down deep into the ground. And I began to get rid of those. My wife says, like in a reality TV show, you know, where you get rid of that 30 minutes. She said, can we get rid of those? And I said, sure we can. So I go to work and I realize it's not 30 minutes. It's probably not even 30 days unless I get some help, right? So I, I cut it with a chainsaw. I dig at it with a shovel. And then I thought, you know, here's one thing I can do. I can hitch the back of my trusty 1992 Ford F-150, four-wheel drive, five-speed, big fat tire truck, and I can, I can jerk them out of the ground and uproot them, and that's what I did. I got a chain, and I got to roaring that truck up with R RPMs, popped the clutch, and began to jerk those things out one at a time. And as I began to jerk those out, the sheer force of all that horsepower, spinning tires on sand and all that, finally got all that uprooted. And when I look back, it was a total and absolute mess. There was nothing pretty about it. And after uprooting all that, we had soil, though, that was ready 
for something else to be planted in. That's another good picture of spiritual growth. Because unless you're willing for God to uproot all the stuff that keeps you from being compassionate and generous and kind and loving and merciful and graceful, you will never be compassionate and generous and kind and loving and merciful and graceful. I want you to go back to this text with me one more time and I want you to put your finger on a verse at a time. You see in verse 29, put your finger there. For you to live out verse 29 first, you have to uproot the hard-heartedness in your heart so that you can show compassion. Put your finger on verse 30. For you to do what verse 30 says, you've got to kill your selfishness and your stinginess in order to be generous. Put your finger on verse 31. For you to do that, you have to get over how you've been treated and start treating people how you want to be treated. There's a lot of dying that goes on with that. In verse 32, you have to remove hatred and replace it with unconditional love. No matter what someone has done to you, no matter how hard it is or how deep the wound, you've got to let that go in order to replace it with unconditional love. In verses 33 through 36, instead of responding normally to ungrateful and evil people, you you will then show mercy and unkindness when you say, I will not respond to them in kind, but rather as Christ has called me to. And in verse 37, you're going to have to show grace when you really want to show your own personal sense of justice. I'm not gonna get justice. God will do that ultimately. I'm gonna show grace. Let me just say something to you today that's very important to all of us in here. This kind of living would look good on all of us. Would you not agree with me today? This kind of living would look good on all of us. And not not only would it look good on us, it would be good in us. There would be a sense of peace and harmony. There would be a a sense of yieldedness to God. There would be a sense of, of listening to God and following God more than anything we've experienced before if we would uproot the old. So we can plant the new inside of our hearts. I was looking at this list last night, or I guess early this morning. Can't go on over it again. And I had this honest thought. It's a very honest thought. And that thought was, I watched this modeled by my father nearly every day of his life as I was growing up. I know I've said before I have had almost perfect parents. I mean, I don't have any excuses for my life. I had perfect parents. None of us have really any excuses, but I had some great parents. I really did. And my dad as a pastor encountered a lot of things that made me never want to go into ministry when I was young. People used to say, are you going to be like your dad and grow up and go into ministry? And I said, absolutely not in the strongest possible way. I said, there's no way I'll ever do that. And the reason is because of how people treated him. And I just didn't think it was fair. But I watched him be compassionate when I felt like maybe he should be harsh. I watched him be generous when I thought he should be a little bit more stingy. I watched him uh, be kind when I felt like he should have decked somebody, you know? I watched my dad show character that was foreign to me. I watched him show character that was found in scripture, but not necessarily found in culture. And as I watched that, it made it easier for me to say, Man, that's, that's something unique. There's something special going on inside of his heart that can't be explained by personality. When you see someone that's compassionate and merciful, when you see someone that's kind, when you see someone that's generous, we tend to chalk it up as, oh, I love their personality. They're so nice. 
but they have every bit the ability that you do to be stingy and harsh and mean and rude and wicked and evil, but somehow they've let God overcome that in their life so that instead they're compassionate and kind and generous and merciful and graceful. Do you think Jesus would actually call us to this if he didn't expect that he could bring it about in our lives? He has drafted you just like he drafted Matthew and Simon and Bartholomew. And you don't know that you have that in your own life, but he does. And he knows what he can make out of you. And he says this, I want you to know true blessing. I want you to know true fruit. And then he ends up this text. That's something I think we must have today. He wants you to have the bravery of a solid foundation. Look at verse 46, 7, and 9, 8, and 9. It says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? This is at the very beginning of his ministry to the disciples. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundations and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is basically saying, I'm gonna lay this out for you. I'm gonna teach you, but it's not taught, it's caught. I want you to walk with me. I wanna show you what this is like. My dad did that for me. Jesus did that for the disciples as a church. One of the greatest priorities we have when we lead others to Christ is to literally adopt them and to say, we're gonna teach you, but it's not taught, it's caught. More importantly, we're gonna walk with you. We're gonna show you what it means to grow up to maturity, show you what it means to be kind and compassionate and generous and Christ-like and loving and merciful because Christ showed us to do that. Jesus said, take my hand, follow me, follow my word. I'll model this for you. You know, in many ways, building your life on the word means that even when you're not fully, fully conscious, even when you're not fully, fully aware, you still default to the word and you still default to the truth that you've been putting into your lives. I had a really unique thing happen to me last Wednesday when I was sitting with my dad. My dad had a very lucid day. It was his most lucid conversational day that he had had in weeks. And um, in the hospital bed, in the hospital room, uh, I was talking with him and uh, his wife said, look, um, he's really talking a lot today. So you, you came at a great time. My mom passed away 20 years ago. Dad remarried sometime after that. So his wife's name is Peggy, a wonderful woman. And she had left to make some phone calls and take care of some business while I was with my dad. And my dad was moving in and out of uh, sleep because he was sedated and was in pain. And so he was sleeping for a while and I was doing some work on the computer and waiting to talk to him uh, whenever he woke up. And, and then I heard him start to talk. And instead of just talking like he would normally talk, he's, he's kind of talking fast and a little bit of excitement for someone on a hospital bed. And, and I listened to him and I realized he's preaching. He's preaching a message. <laughs> and he's preaching about the will of God and true to his Baptist heritage, he has three points. <laughs> I hear him say first, and then later on he said, and second, and then third. And there's nothing more blessed than being in the will of God. And honestly, he's preaching better subconsciously than some guys I've heard preach consciously, you know, he's doing a pretty good job. And uh, Peggy comes back in the room and I said, he's, he's preaching. 
I mean, he's, he's not, his eyes aren't even open. He's not conversing with me. He doesn't even hear me when I say something to him, but he's preaching. And she goes, you know what? He was going to preach that message on the Sunday before he got sick, and he's mad that he didn't get to preach it. And all he's been doing in his sleep is re-preaching that message, re-preaching that message, re-preaching that message. I thought, wow. That's a little bit of a picture of what it means to be so concerned about the words of the one that calls you that even in your sleep you're talking about it because it becomes so important. If that's the foundation, that's what you need to be thinking about. And Jesus says, my words, that's the foundation. Not culture, not what everybody else is doing, not what you wanna do, but my words. Let me just say this to you. A life built on the word is a life that will never be regretted, ever. A life built on anything else is a life always regretted. Build your life on the word. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come to the front as I do each week. And as I close in a moment, I'll ask you to walk down the aisle, take their hand and say, you know what? God needs to do some uprooting in my life. He needs to do deconstruction in my life because I don't have the qualities that Jesus is talking about in Luke 6. If this is the foundation of teaching that I'm supposed to understand, I'm far from that. I'm gonna be honest today. I want God to do some uprooting and do some replanting in my heart. This is a great day to do that. It's a day when you think about your life and the way you think and the way you respond, the way you react, and you realize there's no way by myself I can be any different than I am. And so the answer must not be within me, it must be somewhere else. And I want to tell you today that somewhere else is really some, someone else, and that's Christ. And when you come to him and say, Lord, I want you to clean out the old in order to plant the new, what you're doing is you're saying, I want to follow you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. If that's never happened to you in your life, if you've never given your life to Christ, then ask him to forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life today. Today, I urge you to do it. Because the life built on Christ is a life that will never be regretted. And the life built without Christ is a life that will always be regretted. Today, make that decision in a few moments. When I pray, and at that conclusion, you walk forward when others walk out. It might be today that you're already a believer and you're saying there's some things in my life that don't line up with this. I know that Christ is in me, but I also know I'm struggling to make headway on some of this. Then come to the, come to the front and talk to someone and say, pray with me about that. Would you help me know what next steps I might take so that I can have this fruit that Jesus Christ promises to those who follow him? I want to have a word of prayer. When I finish that prayer, we're dismissed. I invite guests to come to the Guest Reception Center. I'd love to spend a few moments with you. What you remember to give to God as you leave today, if you're a member of this church, let that be a priority of worship for you because he's God, because he's your provider. So today, I want you to stand with me as I close in prayer. And as we stand, we're gonna dismiss. Father, in Jesus' name, I wanna thank you so much for the incredible teaching that you've given us as Jesus came and walked on earth. And as you talked about what real blessing and real fruit is, and Father, what the real foundation is, God, I pray that we'll be brave enough to build our lives on those things and not anything else. And today, I pray that every single one of us in this room would do some true soul searching, really dig into the heart and say, where am I with these things? Am I broken over my sin? Am I mourning because of my actions and my heart? 
Am I hungry for righteousness? And Father, I ask that you just do the work in our hearts that needs to be done so that you can do the work to build up what you want to build. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.